Well, I thought what we would do over our, our couple times together is look at some of the parables. And I know that for many of you, as you've looked at some of the parables of Jesus Christ, you might immediately be thinking, well, I've, I've heard a lot about the parables, as have, as have I. We've heard a lot of messages on the parables. We, we kind of feel like we maybe have a good grasp of some of the parables that Jesus spoke. Uh, but I know that when I look at the Word of God, whenever I come back to it, even specifically with the parables sometimes, God's Word is living, it's active. I can learn and glean new things when I come back to it. And that's especially true, I think, with the parables because there's a lot of mystery into it. There's a lot of hidden mystery and, and uh, intrigue in some of the parables. And so if we're going to talk about the parables, we have to go to where the parables begin. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Matthew chapter 13. And this is kind of where it begins in the gospel account of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at uh, right, right, right in the first verse. And here's what it says. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat behind, beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil, Produce grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So this is the beginning point of Jesus' teaching in parables. Now we know when we think about Jesus in his teaching that he often used a lot of graphic analogies to explain certain spiritual truths that he's trying to get across. For example, he would tell us that uh, we need to place our faith on the rock of God's word. That we as believers are salt and light in this world. He would tell us that we should follow the examples of the birds in the air and the lilies in the field and not being anxious about the necessities of life. And he would give us these graphic analogies often in his teaching, but in those instances, the analogies are, are pretty easy to understand. They make sense. But here in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is going to begin shifting his method of teaching. And he's going to begin using parables. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is going to offer eight parables in a row. There are a total of 39 parables that we know of that Jesus spoke. And some are in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some are just in one of the gospel accounts. Some are in several. There's 39 in total, but he's going to begin shifting his method of teaching. And a parable has this, this hidden mystery that you have to unlock. It's like a little... Uh, puzzle box that you have to figure out. There's some hidden truth in there that you have to find. And if you look at Jesus's life and his ministry up to this point, say the first half of his ministry was really marked a lot by miracles and healings and teaching, like we talked about before. But it was really heavy on miracles and, and, and healings because he's trying to prove that he is who he said he was. He's trying to show everyone that he is the Messiah, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the Son of God that has all power and all authority. So he's doing these miracles and these healings to try to prove this. And he's teaching with authority and with power. But then there's a shift, and in Matthew chapter 13 and on, say the second half of his ministry, there's a change. 
it goes lighter on the healings and the miracles, although those are still there, but it goes heavier on the teaching, specifically teaching with parables. In fact, from this point forward in Matthew chapter 13, through the rest of Jesus' Galilean ministry, he will only address the masses, large crowds of people, with parables. So a parable, uh, we kind of understand this idea, but the, the question that I want to ask is, why would you make this change at all? Because if you look, if you're on the outside looking in at Jesus' ministry, it seems as though his ministry is doing pretty well. I mean, here in our text, we read that they came out of the house, and there's a large group of people there, a large crowd, so large that he gets pushed back to the sea, and he has to get into a boat, push off of the shore, just to have some room to teach the people. Now, from all outside accounts, we would maybe think this looks like a fruitful, blessed ministry. And I would think, I would imagine even the disciples are probably thinking this as well. They come out of the house that morning and they see all those people there and they're probably thinking, this is awesome. This is going to go really good for us. Look at this following that we have because our natural instinct is to see people and to see crowds and immediately think that means success. And then Jesus gets to the edge of the sea and I don't know if, if, if nobody just... Nobody told Jesus the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, because Jesus is about to break it. I mean, it seems like everything is going well. All these people are there. He gets into the boat. He pushes away to have some room. The disciples are probably thinking, this is, this is awesome. Look at this, look at this crowd. We're going to take over the world. And people are there, and they're leaning in. They're, what is Jesus going to do? What is he going to say? He doesn't even stand up. He's just seated in the boat, and he basically goes like this. Guy went out and threw some seed, and some seed landed uh, on a path, and the birds ate it. Some landed on a rocky soil, and uh, it just scorched away. Some landed in thorns, and it got choked out. Some landed on good soil, and it produced a crop. You have ears to hear? You should hear. And that's it. And he goes on to tell seven more parables, but in that moment, that's it. And you've got to imagine the tension that this causes with the crowd that's there. Everybody's there, anxious, what's going to happen, what's he going to do? Maybe he's going to walk on water again. He's out on the boat. Maybe this is going to be part two in his wilderness series. The first was a sermon on the mount. Maybe this will be the sermon on the sea. It's going to be another awesome, lengthy message. And he just tells this vague story. He says, you should hear that. And that's it. The tension that this would have created, I mean, even with the disciples... I mean, they come to him later, and they're basically like, what was that? Why would you do that, Jesus? We had them right where we wanted them. We have this large crowd here. We're trying to conquer the world. I mean, this isn't really good strategic public speaking technique. I'm going to be very vague. I'm going to be very short and quick. I'm going to make people really mad and confused, and then I'm going to send them away. That's not how you grow a crowd. But that's what Jesus does here. And it begs the question, why would you do that? Why make a change when it seems like things are going so well and to just change your method of teaching completely to what it seems like to purposely confuse people? And his disciples come to him in verse 10 and they they basically say, the disciples come to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? 
And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, not even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And those verses where Jesus gives his explanation for why he's going to speak in parables are difficult. Because, I don't know if you caught that, but Jesus is basically saying, I'm, I'm purposefully going to confuse them. Now, why would Jesus do that? Isn't the goal to get as many people as he can? And I think for us to understand why he's doing that, we have to understand some underlying issues of what's taking place here. And here's, here's I think, what I think is the underlying issue. The people are not receiving him as they ought. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is their Messiah, sent by God. He is God himself. And the people are not receiving him as those things. Now, yes, he's doing miracles. He's doing healings. And people aren't necessarily uh, denying the miracles or the healings in, a, in and of themselves. I mean, how could you? Jesus is walking on water. Well, I can't really write that off. This man was demon-possessed, and now he's not. This girl was dead, and Jesus visited her, and now she's alive. You can't write some of that stuff off. Now, people were not necessarily... Uh, denying the miracles or healings in a, of themselves. In fact, they even recognized that they were performed by God's power. How could you not? The problem, however, was that while they recognized a divine source to the miracles, they failed to recognize that Jesus himself was the divine source, that he was God in the flesh, that he has all power, all authority. He is the Son of God, their Messiah. And see, the people are not receiving him as this. Certainly there are some in the crowd that are. But the majority of the crowd is not. In fact, there are a lot of people in the crowd that are staunchly opposed to Christ. There are those who are following Jesus around just to trap him. Just to find fault in him. So that they can have an accusation against him. There are a lot of people in the crowd that are there just for the show. I mean, you almost can't blame them. Jesus is doing some really amazing things. And certainly there would be some superficial people there just to see what's he going to entertain us with today. And the people are not only not receiving him as their king and their Messiah and as God, they're opposed to him. The majority are opposed. So Christ is going to begin this process of weeding out the chaff that's in the crowd. And he's going to do that partly through the use of parables. He's going to reserve the true teaching, at least the true meaning of the teaching, for those in the crowd that would want to know the answer, that by faith and belief would seek to understand. So he's going to conceal truth to, from some, and he's going to reveal truth in new ways to others. And he's going to do that through the use of parables. Now this isn't something that Jesus came up with. He did not invent this this mode of teaching. This was common in Jewish culture to teach in parables. There were several benefits to this. Uh, one, one benefit was that it just made the teaching more interesting. I mean, does it not? If there's like a hidden meaning, like, ooh, I gotta figure this out. Okay, I'm gonna pay attention. It makes it more interesting. Uh, it also uh, makes it easier to remember. 
We have, to, we, have to, we have to understand that back in ancient Jewish times, in the time of Jesus, and even before, a lot of their traditions, a lot of their teaching was handed down oratorily. They had to remember these things, and so a parable was a good way to remember a story or a teaching. Another good way to, uh, another good benefit of using a parable was that, by definition, a parable is taking something and placing it along something else for the use of, uh, to to basically say there's a comparison that can be made. So Jesus is taking a divine truth and he's placing it next to a physical example to say here's the comparison. So by, use, by doing that, another benefit of the parable is that it's easier to apply it to your life. Because we're talking about difficult things, uh, moral truths, spiritual truths that are hard to understand, but I understand everyday things. So if you can take something that's difficult to understand and you can compare it with something that's easy to understand, I can apply that to my life if I'm willing to do the work. And so Jesus is not, he's just using a mode of teaching that is common in that time. And he's going to begin a process of weeding out the chaff that's in the crowd. He's going to conceal the truth from some and reveal the truth to others. This is partly a beginning judgment that Christ is exercising over those in the crowd that would oppose him. Because there are many, even just like the Pharisees that were there, that continued to openly deny Christ, to oppose Christ, to try to turn others away from Christ. And Jesus is just simply going to give them over to the desires of their heart. You may think that that doesn't seem very fair, that Jesus would purposefully try to confuse people. But Jesus is simply giving them what they want. They want nothing to do with Christ. They're opposed to him. They're rejecting him. And so Jesus is simply giving them over to their desires. You don't want to receive me and understand my kingdom? Fine. Then from now on, these things are going to be hidden from you. But to those of you that do, to those of you that have faith, to those of you that believe, to those of you that will do the work, even further revelation will be given. And that's why I think even for us today this applies because believers and followers of Christ today are given divine insight through the Holy Spirit to know and to understand and comprehend the deeper spiritual things of God. And that's why it is so important that we have faith. Our faith is so important because our faith allows us to see what an unbeliever is not able to see. And I just love that he doesn't give an explanation. Like he doesn't stand up in the boat and say, okay, I just want to explain what's about to happen. Some of you are rejecting me, so I'm going to begin teaching really strangely. I'm going to begin using parables. He doesn't do any of that. He just launches into a parable. And what I love about that is he's going to launch into a parable to explain why he's using parables. The parable that he's going to use explains why he needs to use the parable. It's the parable of the sower. And he says basically there's four different fields or soils that the seed lands on, right? You got the path, you got the rocky soil, you got the thorny soil, you got the good soil. Those four types of soils represent four heart attitudes that would receive the seed or the word of God. And some things that we need to make sure we understand about the heart and the seed is that if you think about the soils down to their bare necessity, all four soils soils are the same in that they're, they're dirt. 
It's dirt that, given the right conditions, can support and grow a crop. And as it relates to the human heart, we know from Romans 8, 7, from Ephesians 2, 15, and 16, as it relates to the human heart, every human heart by nature, by default, is hostile towards God. Until God, or unless God does something in the human heart, our natural default position is hostility to God. And so all four of the soils, all four of the hearts are the same in that all naturally reject God, but then we can also see that every heart is also able to be redeemed. Every heart is capable. Jesus said in John six thirty seven, the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. So every heart is able to be redeemed. And as far as the soils go, we need to understand also that there's, the difference isn't in the seed, it's in the soil. It's not in the word being spoken, it's in how the heart receives the word. It's in the seed, not the soil. And we know that the parable of the soil is not a difficult one to understand. I'm sure as I even read it, you were probably thinking, I get this. This is pretty easy. Well, it's pretty easy because Jesus gave us the answer. Right? He gives us the answer key. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, you skip to verse 18, the disciples come to Jesus after they say, what was that about? Jesus explains why he does that. Then he says, here's the answer. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This was what was sown along the path. Now Jesus here does not identify himself as the sower, but we know from the very next parable, which is the wheat and the tares, or the weeds, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, that, Jesus, that the one who sows is the son of man. We also know from Luke's account that the seed is the word of God that is spoken. So we can put those things together, that Jesus is the sower that sows the word of the kingdom, particularly uh, through salvation by grace through faith. And in a broader sense, we can take this down to us as well. Any believer then who preaches or testifies of the gospel message sows the seed of Christ's words on his behalf. Therefore, any parable... Uh, this parable applies to really any true presentation of the gospel. So the first soil we come to is the path. It says that th- this is the soil that's mentioned. The, the sower goes out, he just scatters seed. He's not too worried about where it's going to land. I mean, he's trying, but some seed undoubtedly is going to fall on the path. There's always a path in the field. The farmer would go down and the people would walk through so you're not trampling over the crop. And, by, and naturally, as you walk up and down that, it gets packed down and hard, and some of the seed would fall on the path. And because it's hard and and packed down, the seed cannot penetrate through, and it just lays bare on top. And once the farmer gets a safe distance away, the birds of the air will come, and they'll snatch it away. And so he says, "This this is the first type of soil. This is the first type of heart response to the gospel message, is the path. And this is the person's spiritual soil that has been so packed down, so hardened to the things of God, that the spiritual seed cannot penetrate and get in. And Jesus tells us that the birds represent the evil one. This is Satan. So we are to understand then that the one who has completely hardened his heart, who is completely turned off to the things of God, who sees no need for repentance, 
who has no conviction of sin, no desire for holiness, is opposed to God, this person lacks the covering of God over their life and is exposed to the attack of the enemy. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world is Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers are left exposed to the evil one. And this is by their doing because of the hardness of their heart. The next soil is the rocky soil. So this is the soil that on the top, it looks normal. And you've probably experienced this before. I've experienced this this even in my own backyard. I remember digging a couple times. It looks good on top, but once you get six inches down, you start hitting rocks, right? And it's just a bunch of rocks until your shovel can't even really get in there. It's just rock after rock. You could plant something in there, and you could water it, and it might grow for a while. But because there's so many rocks, the seed has nowhere to really grasp and nowhere to take root, and it will just come out easily. It'll get scorched. You ever pull weeds out of rocks and how easily they come out as opposed to in the, the, the true soil? There's no foundation. There's nothing to grab onto. This is the rocky soil. It looks fine on the top. Jesus says this in verse 20, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately... He falls away. So immediately he receives it, and immediately it falls away. Just as quick. And unfortunately, I think this is one of the issues that is is really happening a lot in our world today. We get a one-sided view of the gospel. And there's this idea that easy believism is the way to go. That a watered-down, diluted gospel will draw people in and it'll get the good crowds. Let's just talk about the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Let's not deal with anything else. And we'll get a bunch of people in here. Because let's face it, it's good news. The gospel is good. It's great news. It's the greatest story ever told in, in all of human history. That the God of the universe loves us enough to send his own son to die in our place. That he gives us hope, he gives us forgiveness of sin, he gives us a future in eternity with him. This is great news. But it's also not one-sided. There is a cost to following Christ. Your life will be difficult in many regards. There will be persecution. There will be opposition. You will have to give away some things. You will have to battle your sin. You will have to battle your flesh. And listen, whenever we're battling our own selfishness, man, that is a war. That is a fight. And it is not easy, and we know that. And when the gospel is presented to someone, and it's only given one side, and they receive that, of course they're going to receive that with joy. But the moment any tribulation comes in, or the moment that any amount of doubt, or if they realize in that moment that they have to give something up, wait a minute, I have to, I have to do what? I have to defend what? In, in light of my culture? This is not what I signed up for. 
And it says, just as quickly as they've received it, they fall away. This is why it is so important for us to present the full gospel message. That yes, it's the best news you will ever hear. But yes, it's difficult, it's hard, there is a cost. We have to pick up our cross, we have to follow after him, we have to battle our sin and our selfishness and our desires. But it's worth it. Especially in light of eternity, it is worth it. So press on. And unfortunately, whether because of bad doctrine or bad teaching, a lot of people only receive a one-sided gospel. And of course, they'll receive it with joy. And it's rocky. It's rocky. The next one he mentions is, is the thorns in Matthew 20, uh, 13, 22. He says this, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. John warns us of, of the same thing in John, 1 John 2, 15 and 16. He says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, or love, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the reality is that if, if we are not concerned about sin in our life, if we, are, if we don't hate evil, if we don't love righteousness, this may give strong evidence that our life is weedy, that it's thorny. And you will eventually discover that your love for the world and your supposed identification with Christ cannot coexist together. And the world will win. The unchecked desire of riches will win. In Matthew 19, 23 and 24, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we know that money is not the root of all evil, wherever that got misquoted. We need to set that right. We know that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evils. There's nothing wrong with money or riches if it's checked and balanced. But those things, those things can quickly become thorns in our soil, in our life, that can choke out the gospel. And we know many instances in scripture, Jesus even dealt with them. You want to follow me? Okay, give it up and come follow me. Oh, I can't do that. That's too much. Thorny ground. The person, uh, the next, uh, in the last soil that's mentioned is the good soil. Verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So the person that is the good soil... Uh, is not any less sinful than any other soils. They're not more educated or better at anything necessarily. 
They have the same selfish desires, the same selfish flesh to deal with. So what's, difference when you, what's different when you look at the four soils? There's a few things that are different. One is faith, belief, and fruit bearing. Those are the differences. The good soil has belief and faith and bears fruit. The only barrier to salvation is unbelief. Anyone, I just read it, Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will not cast away. But you got to come to Jesus on his terms. The only barrier to salvation is unbelief. And to that person that comes with faith and comes with belief, God honors that humility and opens their spiritual eyes to see and understand the gospel. And the other difference that is made with the good soil as opposed to the other soils is that it will bear fruit. Now, ultimately, this is the, outward, this is the greatest outward mark of a believer. The greatest inward mark is the Holy Spirit. The greatest outward mark is our fruit bearing. So how do we bear fruit? We know, we know some of these answers. We know Paul told us that the fruit of the Spirit are those things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things will be evident in your life. There's also the lifestyle that we live. There are the good works that we do. <gasps> he said good works. I think we've gotten, we, we've been so opposed to the idea of good works, and for good reason, because we're trying to make it known that we are not saved by the good works we do. But I think we've, sh- we've switched so far to that side to say, oh, it's not about your works, it's not about your works, that we stop doing works. And I think we need to get back to a place where we understand works are good. No, actually, works are needed because they prove that we're good soil. And we need to stop hiding behind this idea of we got to not share that we do works. It's not by works. We know that. We are, we are not saved by fruit-bearing but for fruit-bearing. Ephesians 2.10, that great verse where Paul says, we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. We should walk in the good works that we need to do. And part of the the fruit-bearing that we will do as good soil is to go find other good soil. That's the greatest fruit bearing that we're going to do. Because here's my guess that everyone in this room, the reason you're here is because someone went out and threw some seed. And some of that seed of the gospel message landed in your good soil heart. And it penetrated and it took root. And you had faith and you had belief. And because someone did this, you're here today. And you were once the good soil, but now it's time to move from good soil to sower. And it's our task then to go out and spread seed. This is our good work. This is the point. And I think for me, one conviction that I fell under, just be honest with you, is I think often for me I pray, God, would you send someone in my path? Just send someone in my path that needs to hear the gospel. Anybody else pray that? You don't have to raise your hand. I do. God, just send someone in my path. I want to share. I'm I'm willing. I'm ready. Send someone. But then I read the sower, and what's it say? The sower what? Went out to sow some seed. He went out. He didn't sit on the couch with his bag of seed like, bring the soil. I'm ready. He went out, and he started throwing the seed. Now, notice what he also didn't do. He didn't worry about where the seed landed necessarily. He threw it everywhere. 
And yet we want to go, uh, you're probably thorny ground. I'm not going to talk to you. You're, yeah, you're definitely the path. I'm not talking to you. You might be good soil, so I'll, I'll throw a little seed. I'll throw a little pebble your way. Is that what the sower does? No, he just, he does this. And I think we've got it into our mind, especially with evangelism, that the win for us with evangelism is that someone comes to Christ. That's not the win. What did he say? That's not the win for us. The sower throws the seed and then what? It's out of his hands. Whose hands are it in now? It's in the Father's hands. It's not our job to bring someone to salvation. It's our job to throw the seed. He cultivates the ground. He grows it. He does everything else. We don't look for which ground we need to throw it on. We throw the seed. The win for us is not if that person comes to salvation. That's the win for God, not for us. The win for us is what? That's our win. Throw the seed. You throw the seed, win. You go next door to the neighbor. You say, Jesus loves you. You throw that seed, that's your win. Not whether that neighbor comes to Christ. That's God's deal now, not yours and not mine. But he went to sow some seed. Are we going to sow some seed? I had to ask myself that. I'm just being honest. Are we going out to sow the seed? Are we so focused on, nope, this person, nope, this group? Or are we just sowing the seed of the gospel, of our good works? There it is again, oh no. Of our good works, so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father and live a life that is worthy. That's what the sower does, and that's what we're called to do as well. So Jesus has this crowd of people, and of course, because he's God, he knows their hearts, he knows their soils, and so it might seem kind of counterintuitive, like, okay, we're not to worry about what soil to go to, but isn't that what Jesus does? I mean, because isn't he focusing on the good soil right here? Yeah, but he's God and you're not. You throw the seed, you let him deal with it. And he's going to, he knows the hearts of the crowd and the people that are rejecting and opposing him. And he's just said, I'm done with that. I'm going to begin to weed you out. And to the ones that will really have faith and will believe, belief is so powerful. Faith is so powerful. These things will be revealed to you. You ever met someone, an unbeliever, that they just, they can't, they don't get it. They can't understand it. And it's such awesome news. And Jesus is weeding out this crowd, saying, I want the ones that are serious. I want the ones that are dedicated. I want the ones that will follow, that will ask the questions, that will pursue, that will take up their cross, that will fight their sin, that will battle, that will that will preserve up. I want those ones. That's the good soil. I'm going to focus on them. He focused on 12 guys. And we think large crowds are what it's at. But with Jesus, it was 12 guys and even three guys and one in in that. Because that's where the life change happens. And so he uses this parable, doesn't even explain why, just says, here it is. Because there are four different types of people out in this crowd, and I need to weed them out. And it does. It irritates a lot of people. The Pharisees, there are some parables that are just right at them, (laughs) including this one, because they're the path. And he, he does this, and he weeds them out. 
But for us today, it is important that we understand, first of all, that in its context, Jesus is talking to those people, but it can still apply to us. And I think how it applies to us, just as a reminder, is that we were once soil that was good, and now we need to become sowers that go out and spread the gospel. And not worry about where that seed falls. Leave that in God's hands. Just have the win of sharing the gospel. And my, my kind of goal over the next couple of weeks is we're going to continue to look at some of the parables. Um, and like I said, I know there's a lot of different, you guys have all heard teaching on the parables. I had to start with this one because it's where Jesus started. But the angle that I want to come at with the parables is the cultural context and the historical background that they were in when that parable took place. Because unfortunately, what we tend to do is we tend to take our culture, our time, and place it in the Gospels, in the parables, and say, oh, I understand it. No, you understand it from your culture and your time period. But if we were there, uh, we like to do this. I like to try to do this sometimes. It's like, well, I put myself in the Scriptures. Like I was there in the room. Jesus is talking to me. I'm in the front row. But the reality is he's not talking to you. He's talking to a specific people in a specific culture in a specific time in history. And if we get our culture and our, our viewpoint out of it, we will learn some new things that I think are awesome for us that still can apply to us. We need to pretend like when we're listening to the parables that we're there, but we're in the back of the room watching how Jesus talks to those people, how he interacts with them, not necessarily with us, because then we'll gain some new insight. We'll gain some new insight. So that's going to be my key, uh, my goal over the next couple of weeks. I uh, appreciate you guys sitting through this. I hope it wasn't too bad. Um, I know it was convicting for me and challenging for me, and I look forward to the next couple of weeks with you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you would spread the seed of your word to our lives and to our hearts, that it would, be, that it would penetrate us, that it would speak to us, that it would move us to belief and salvation by faith. Help us to move from soil to sower and to return the favor as someone once did for us. Because it is the greatest news we've ever heard and we thank you for it. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he's done for us, what he continues to do for us, what he will do for us. We want others to experience that. And we want you to be honored and we want you to be glorified. And so we love you, we thank you. And we lift high your name, the great name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You're all dismissed. Thank you.